From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's Jedi Cloud won't be the only the department's total cloud solution, according to Chief Information Officer Dana Deasy. He tells Breaking Defense the department will keep hundreds of cloud contracts it already has. Deasy says the department never intended to, quote, take all of our clouds, get rid of them, and migrate everything over to Jedi. Work is underway on the Navy's new frigate program. Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development and Acquisition, Hondo Gertz, says the first hull will cost about $1.3 billion. Defense News reports the contract calls for 10 ships, but the Navy plans to buy 20 frigates total. Gertz says shipbuilder Finn Cantieri will deliver the first one in 2026. The Trump administration has more candidates for jobs in the department. The nominations of Michelle Pierce to be general counsel of the Army and John Whitley to be director of cost assessment and program evaluation are in the hands of the Senate Armed Services Committee tonight. Politico reports the White House says it will nominate Louis Bremer to become assistant secretary for special operations and low intensity conflict. For the Army to be able to fight tonight, it needs uninterrupted access to energy. One of the Army's goals is energy resilience. Alex Beeler is Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy and Environment. Mr. Secretary, thanks very much for coming on. Define that term to start, please. What does energy resilience mean and what's the difference between that and just energy availability and a consistent stream of energy? Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Ross, uh, Rose. Energy resilience, as far as the Army is concerned, really means uninterrupted access to energy and water so that the installations are able to carry out their critical missions at all times, 24-7. And this is significant because the installations are where um, our soldiers live and train and deploy and therefore critical to provide uh, readiness. Uh, so in a sense, the fence line has become the front line in order for the Army to respond to any challenges it may face in the defense of our country. The energy resilience concept has been something that the Army has focused on for a long time. The Army is one of the pioneers in the Defense Department of the public-private partnership to provide energy reliability and that energy resilience that you just referred to. What are some of the things that the Army is doing now, that your office is doing now, to build and maintain, sustain the energy resilience that the Army needs? in order to sustain is a very a good and close collaboration with our stakeholders. And that would include Congress, other parts of the Department of Defense, uh, Department of Energy, other federal agencies, um, utilities, industry, local communities, and other stakeholders to come together and to help uh, sustain uh, energy and water access 
so that uh, the Army can engage in um, uh, its critical missions. And one example of that has occurred at, uh, in close cooperation with the local utilities in Hawaii, where a project was developed of 50 uh, megawatts of multi-fuel use that uh, would allow access to uh, backup power uh, for the Army garrison of, of Hawaii to be able to effectively use it in case of any, uh, any shutdown or loss of power. The 800-pound gorilla in the room for everybody right now is coronavirus response, Mr. Secretary. What impact has coronavirus had on your portfolio, whether it's energy resilience or any other part of your portfolio, sir? Well, on energy resilience, uh, the impact has been relatively uh, minimal because, um, once again, uh, we have been preparing to make sure that we have backup case capabilities in case of emergencies such as this. Um, the impact has been greater on um, areas such as uh, privatized housing uh, responsibilities where there are a lot of ongoing um, inspections and maintenance that the privatized companies who have uh, housing responsibilities on our bases obviously would have to engage and having the uh, virus and the restrictions of stay in place, stay at home has, has limited that interaction between the private companies and individual residents from the standpoint of taking any work order or corrective action. I want to go back to this concept of energy resilience in the time that we have left, Alex. What What's the future of energy resilience look like? What's over the horizon that you and your team are looking at to make, thing, to, to make energy more available and make the flow more consistent for people, whether they're at the tip of the spear or whether they're back on base or whether they're a civilian working in the Pentagon? Well, one thing that we're very proud of is in the encouragement of what we call energy resilience exercises. And that is in response to an Army requirement that installations for their critical mission assets must have backup energy power for both energy and water. Length of time uh, determined by the senior commander. So these exercises are basically unplugging from the commercial grid uh, with little or advanced notice to see uh, how the various backup and emergency generating uh, power responses do respond and work. We've done four of these. They've been very uh, instructional in uh, showing the credibility gaps. And we hope to do more and inspire installations to do more, to be well prepared to expect the unexpected. Alex Beeler, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. More Government Matters coming in just a moment.
The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accrediting Body wants a cloud tool so the Defense Department can monitor the cyber standards of its contractors. The RFP doesn't say who would pay for the tool. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland at Night. Eric, thanks for uh, coming on. CMMC is going down a number of layers into the defense industrial base. What should primes and what should subs be doing now to prepare? And should they be doing different things or the same things, Eric? I actually think they should be doing a lot of the same things. Um, I think a lot of subcontractors don't believe that they're government contractors. But the fact of the matter is, is that as a lot of subcontractors see in their subcontract agreements, a lot of things are flowed down from the primes to the subs that kind of puts those requirements on those subcontractors. So um, the first thing that they should really be thinking about is, um, you know, what kind of information do I have from the government and what level of CMMC certification will I need? And primes and subs equally should be thinking about that. But one thing primes should be doing in particular is, is monitoring their subs really closely and seeing if they believe that those subcontractors will be able to get a CMMC certification of some kind, the kind that's necessary to handle that data. Uh, DOD has really said that most contractors will need between a level one and level three CMMC certification. Very few will need level four and five. And as it is right now, that, that DFARS clause that everyone has to abide by um, requires uh, level three, essentially, certification. It's, a, it's the equivalent of what level three will be. So um, folks should already be complying with that now, whether they're primes or subs, if they're handling uh, CUI. But um, the primes should really take pause and look at their subcontractors and ensure that those subcontractors are ready to go when CMMC certification is required. When Katie Arrington was on this program not long ago, the person who's running the CMMC program in Ellen Lord's office, she said that they are working as hard as they can to keep especially level one and two certifications as inexpensive as possible so that the subs, the small companies can handle it. Are you hearing, whether anecdotally or with gathered data, that that's actually turning out to be the case for the companies that are having to deal with this, Eric? I think, um, and most of my, I'm anecdotal. I talk to a lot of companies in a given day just based on what I do. And I think those um, small business subcontractors don't know how much it's going to cost. I've heard $3,000 or so for a level one certification uh, is the expected cost. But no matter what it is, there are small business uh, subcontractors that are obviously very concerned about that additional cost. As it is now, a lot of contracts have one, two, three percent margins. And just a few thousand dollars in, in any one way or the other can make a difference between a contract that's underwater and a contract that's profitable. So I'm hoping that DOD is good to its word and will m ensure that these certifications are not too expensive because the small business subcontracting community uh, and contracting community is very concerned about that. What's your sense of what COVID-19's done to all of this, done to the way that the Defense Department will manage this program, done to the way that the primes will have to respond, the way that they'll monitor the subs, the way that you suggested earlier in this conversation that they should, the way the subs will have to deal with all of this, the entire landscape, Eric? Gosh, I'm glad we have an hour to speak about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, it's... One thing that DOD has, has said, and at least Katie Arrington has said, we, we served on a panel together, is that uh, they're looking at ways to make the level one and two certifications happen without a, a site visit of some kind. And that may have been in the works before COVID-19, I'm not sure, but that's something that they're, they're definitely looking at. But we shouldn't lose track of the fact that um, CMMC is going to happen no matter whether there's a raging pandemic or not, because DOD views cybersecurity as too important um, to let anything 
stand in its way. And I'm not saying I disagree with that. I'm just saying that's the reality of the situation. They're not slow rolling this at all because of the pandemic. They'll use their brains and they'll try to figure out a way uh, to let it happen one way or the other. That may be less side visits or no side visits. It may be a different kind of side visit. It may be a video side visit uh, to get a certification. Um, but but no, there's a lot that contractors are thinking about with COVID-19 between PPP, 3610 of the CARES Act, workers that aren't working and how to get compensated for that. But in the background, CMMC is still there and it's still going to happen. I'm seeing companies that are already saying they're certified. I'm not aware of any announcements that the department has made that a certain company is indeed certified. What does that mean in your view when you see stuff like that, Eric? Um, I can't speak to any particular companies yes. um, that are saying that, but in, uh, from a general proposition, there are no certifications right now. Um, and there are no companies that are able to certify. We have the accreditation board that sits between the contractors and DOD. The accreditation board has not trained the assessors yet to, to make those certifications. So no certifications have, have happened yet. So to the extent that somebody is advertising that they can make a certification, that's probably not the case at this point. What is the case at this point is that there are companies out there that are trying to help contractors see based on 1.02, CMMC version 1.02, whether those um, whether they're in position to be certified based on the standards that we know now. Um, so they can kind of do an assessment. That That's pretty common and DOD doesn't say not to do that. In fact, I think they recommend that, um, you know, if, if you're using a good third party provider. But um, no certifications are happening yet. In fact, none will happen at least until the summer. We have less than a minute left, Eric. What will you watch as all of this happens over the next couple of weeks, especially given where we are with COVID-19 and people working in such a dispersed manner? Two things. One, I'm going to look for those reg proposed regulations that are going to bring together the DFARS clause and the new CMMC requirement. It's supposed to be now one clause, so that should be coming out at any moment now. Um, the second thing I'm going to look at is what are contractors doing because of COVID-19 with a lot of teleworking going on to secure their networks um, wherever they are, and that includes in, in their employees' homes. So one area where you know we didn't think we were going to have to deal with is open Wi-Fi networks in people's homes. Um, company laptops or personal laptops being used for corporate business in people's homes. So um, I, I don't know what kind of ramifications we'll see from that, but that's one thing I'm monitoring as well. Eric Crucius, thanks very much as always. Thank you so much. Up next, implementing standard Army building designs everywhere. Straight ahead on Government Matters, setting the standards in the structures the Army builds over and over again. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. uses standardized designs when building facilities like barracks and fitness centers, but the service could do more to track how successfully it uses these designs. A new Government Accountability Office report recommends the Army create performance measures. Diana Moore is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. What has the Army done in recent years to try to establish uh, design standards for these kinds of buildings it, it builds over and over again? Well, about a dozen years or so ago, when the Army was in the middle of a pretty substantial construction boom, 
uh, the Army Corps of Engineers started developing standard designs, which are essentially a good starting point for the types of facilities that they build most frequently. So things like barracks, fitness centers, headquarters, those kinds of things. And, and the idea was that if, um, when constructing these new facilities, if you had a starting set of standards, or essentially blueprints, it would give the Army Corps the opportunity to build these facilities more quickly, at lower cost, and with fewer change orders. So it would help improve the overall efficiency and effectiveness of military construction. What, what data did you look at in this new report to try to assess that? Well, one of the first things we started off was with was assessing the, the breadth of what the Army Corps is doing in any, in any given year. And we found that on an annual basis, depending on the amount of money appropriated by Congress, the Army Corps is uh, doing construction worth hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes in excess of a billion dollars a year. And about anywhere from half to about two-thirds of those construction projects are building facilities that uh, draw upon these these standard designs. So from, from a framing perspective, the use of these, of these standard designs was very important. We looked at what the Army Corps was doing to ensure that those standard designs were being used and to assess whether or not those standard designs were having an impact on cost and time frames. How successful did you find the Army as you, as you kind of zoomed in on this data? Well, I think from a good news perspective, the Army was doing oversight of the standard designs that it had in place. It was, for example, periodically assessing whether the ones they currently had needed to be updated or whether new ones were necessary. So that's, on, that's good news. That helped them meet one of their key objectives. But where they really needed to show some improvement was in their ability to assess whether the standard designs were being consistently implemented across the Army, as well as the overall impact of those designs. What recommendations did your report make then? Well, we recommended that the Army Corps develop a set of performance measures to better position them to know whether or not these designs were being used comprehensively across the broad universe of projects, construction projects. And, you know, and keep in mind, the Defense Department is one of the largest property owners in the world. Uh, they own property in excess of a trillion dollars in value. So properly executing and implementing standard designs could have really important implications for overall cost savings and efficiency. So first we said, hey, Army Corps, you should develop performance measures to assess whether or not these standard designs were being used comprehensively. We also recommended that they develop performance measures to assess the overall impact of these standard designs, how well they are working. And those kind of measures are important because absent them, absent those kinds of measures, from an oversight perspective, um, you're really left trying to assess progress based on anecdote, not based on facts. Why do you think the, the Army hasn't been um, doing those kinds of measurements in the past? Is that just a, a matter of resources? I think in part it's because the use of standard designs are a relatively new thing for the Army Corps. Uh, the Army as a whole is ahead of the other services. So for example, the Navy and the Air Force are starting to move out, but they are, they're years behind the Army. So I think this is sort of the next, the next natural evolution in the process. Uh, and to the Army Corps' credit, they agreed with our recommendations and said they're going to take actions to implement them fully, which I think is, is a very good piece of news. What benefits do you think they could see in perhaps the best case scenario? Do you think this could um, re result in more cost savings or um, faster timelines? That's certainly the hope. 
that if by by doing more, a more comprehensive look at the implementation of the standard designs and assessing where they're working or potentially not working well, it gives the Army Corps the opportunity to uh, complete these construction projects faster and at lower cost. And that's a, that's, that provides benefits to the Army Corps, to the Army, and the taxpayer as well. So it's a win-win-win. You indicated that the Army was open to this and, and plans to make these changes. Um, is there any sort of timeline in place? Will GAO be, be tracking to ensure that these changes are made? Yes, in fact, that's something we do with, with all of our reports. That's part of our standard process is uh, once we issue recommendations to, to agencies and departments, we follow up periodically. Uh, since uh, you know, our report was issued uh, just about a week or so ago, so we'll give them a little bit of time to try to take some action. And there's certainly, uh, Army Corps certainly has their hands full with uh, COVID response right now, but we're gonna continue to assess their progress. We'll provide updates on our website on the status of the Army's implementation of our recommendations and use that to help inform our future oversight agenda. It sounds like, sorry, with just about 30 seconds to go, it sounds like you'll also be able to assess whether they put the right performance measures in place. Is that uh, accurate? Right, exactly. We'll be able to weigh in to make sure that the performance measures that they do implement are certainly within the, uh, the, the, the scope of what we're hoping for in, in our recommendations. Thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. No, thank you very much. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.